0: City headquarters, I'm Adam Teter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Fair Podcast. And still guest hosting is Oset Babor Winter. Hello. What's up, Oset? Happy Hi. Friday. Happy Friday. Isn't it great?
1: It's so great.
0: It's like the best.
1: It is the best. Friday's
0: always good. We so, have fun on a Friday. Uh, podcast. How how you both doing? How y'all doing? Good, good, good. Good? Yeah. We're feeling good? Well, today we're gonna talk about something really interesting, which I think all of us. Don't truly understand. <laughs> Zach, Zach, Zach will say he Zach will present us with the answer, probably uh, the oracle. Know. But cult wine, yeah. and my and my question is: so Zach, you have an inter- interview you can tell us about in a second sure. uh, that's going to also play during the pot during the, this episode. But I think cult wine is another one of these things that isn't truly defined, right? Nope. And everyone sort of decides what they think a cult wine is. And I'll be honest, when Osa and I were talking about this in my office, I realized I actually have no fucking clue. Yeah. Like, what makes something cult? Because the wine we're going to try, I think you've described as a cult wine, right, Zach? And I think others describe it as a cult wine. Yeah. But you can get it very easily on Wine.com. Well, wow. That's Whereas, true for almost every
2: wine these days,
0: so. Screaming Eagle? Could I get Screaming Eagle on Wine.com? No fucking way. Maybe so not is on that, Wine.com. So that's a cult wine. Like, Screaming Eagle, you can only get, if you're on the list... Or you buy it in an after in the aftermarket, right? In the secondary sure. market, not the aftermarket, the secondary market. The, the aftermarket, market where wine eagle die. That's not going to sa- end well for you. The sa- the sale bin, <laughs> the, the sale bin at at, at, at Wine and Liquor. Oh no, <laughs> a bottle of Screaming Eagle for like three dollars. <laughs> but like, so what makes a wine cult? Well, you know that's a really
2: good question, and I was hoping that you guys could maybe offer some insight onto this too, because I we think- can.
1: Yeah, we can so all I, offer insight. I can try. <laughs> I, I think that it needs
2: it needs a combination of a, at least a few of these factors that I'll name. So one of them is price. I think a, a, it, there's no such thing as an inexpensive cult wine. And I don't know exactly know where the bottom, the, the threshold cutoff point is. It's at least three figures, probably more, but that's one piece of it. The second piece, I think, is, is actual or perceived scarcity. So... Dom Perignon costs a lot of money, but it's no cult wine. They make like a million bottles of it a year. So that's not, you know, it's not just price. And third, I think, is there needs to be, and I think this is actually maybe the biggest part of it, but it's hard to define, is there needs to be a kind of mystique about the wine or the winemaker or the winery or or all of the above. It That, that has, uh, they, they need to be, I think, generally presented as sort of these products of of generally one person or maybe a small group of people's like passion and genius and borderline madness. And that's where kind of the whole cult part comes into play to some extent that like, you know, you're kind of, you know, that, that again, you're kind of walking this line of greatness and madness um, that is exciting, but also
0: scary. Interesting. Let me, can I read the definition that the, uh, Jedi Wine Master Jancis Robinson gifts for what? About that's wine like is. Keith Beavers. My God, if anyone was going to be the Jedi Wine Master, I thought it'd be yeah, him. Jedi Wine she's, Master. He's just a she's just wine Padawan. Yes, I am a wine Padawan. I will always be. Keith's Keith's the Jedi Wine Master. So okay, okay, here we go. So first of all, I think what's interesting is in the Oxford Wine Companion, it is not cult wine. It is specifically California cult huh. wine, and what she says is California cult wines. It is, a, it is a phrase coined in the 1990s to encompass wines made in the state of California, typically but not exclusively Nappy, Napa Valley Cabernets, for which collectors and possibly a few investors were willing to pay prices higher than those of Bordeaux's first growths. Huh. They include such names as Araujo, Bryant Family, Colgen, Dalla vale, Maya, Grace Family, Harlan Estate, Moraga, Screaming Eagle… Sin Kwanon and Vineyard 29. What well, many of these names have in common is that they are made in extremely limited quantity by talented winemaker, consultant, and often female, currently favored by fashion. Hmm. Interesting.
1: I have a different perspective with Please. this. Please, yeah. Okay, so here's my thought, and I feel like this is something that we... Uh, to me, when I see, like, this is a cult wine mentioned in conversation or on Instagram or in an article at kind of, you know a outlet that maybe caters more to millennials and younger drinkers. Yeah. I think of like gut ogau, like that's what comes to mind. You know, the, they're like the bottles that have the illustrations on the front of the headshots of the Austrian. Yeah. yeah the Austrian uh, like yeah.
0: natural wine. Correct. Yeah.
1: So, and I think, or like, you know, for a while it was the Calcicaris wines before things happened there. She and lives. right. But like before, <laughs> before all of that, you know, happened. That, to me, was a cult wine. And, you know, things like the Where's Linus wines. Like, stuff like that that was really kind of buzzy that you keep seeing photos of the wine label on Instagram. Yeah. That strikes me as this generation's cult wine, where it's not about, like, accessibility and how expensive it is. It's just, like, how much are you seeing it all over your feed? Right. Because it's got a cult following. Like, people are, like, really obsessed with, like, that label. I think that's
0: that's a better definition. I think... What? It might not
1: be what we're talking about right. here, but that's what I think of, like, as someone who really enjoys natural wine, like, that is my perspective on, like, the definition there.
0: I think you could, t- like, to me, those are almost like hype wines, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, in in New York, for example, like, everyone in the Italian scene being like, Roanya, Roanya, Roagna right? Like, those are, are they, cold? now they're scarce, but then we start calling them allocated wines, is out, does, and, I mean, we haven't done this episode yet, but we've talked about it. Like, does allocated always mean good? It can just mean that maybe the winemaker only shipped a, a case into the country and, like, it's allocated just because they only shipped a case.
1: Or, like, a very hyped producer. Like, for a while, I remember that. What is it? The, the piquette-like beverage. Have you guys ever had that? It was, like, the... It's this... It's like a holographic wine label that was all over Instagram last summer. It was the producer is the um, Marinier or something like that, I don't and they know that. I think they're in Willamette, and they were making Zach. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am oh, I just, well, like, you, I think about you're thinking wine? of the Marinier.
2: Sure, the Marinier yes. or whatever. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Sorry. Like I'm everywhere. Pronouncing it. Yeah. Everywhere. Well. And, and it was just well the producer's name at least, but it's it was kind of you know it, that felt very buzzy and cult like
0: to me. Yeah, like Clo Richard. Yeah, Clo Richard was like. But see, cult, you know, like, but I don't think they're cult in the way that other people would, like, the traditional collector would discuss cult. Like, I well, think, well,
2: but, but okay, so here's where I think we have to kind of separate out two things. Yeah. A bottle like Cloverjard is absolutely a collector's wine. Like, that is yes. a wine that people buy and age and hang on to. I think and it, almost every increases in value. Yes. I think almost everything that, that Osette is describing is. Yeah, whether they're hype wines, whether they're like just buzzy wines, which is basically saying the same thing. But there's no one is buying those bottles and saying like I'm going to hold on to them with the goal of reselling them for ten times the value. One hundred percent. Like mm-hmm. those yeah. wines, the bottles might explode before you get to that point. Um, <laughs> and so, and <laughs> I so don't I don't know think, what you're
1: doing with your bottles, but or
2: die. Well, that Piquette, I don't know that I would hang on to that wine for very long. Um, but in any case, um, I do think that there is is. A, a point here of of some of these wines, and it, there is scarcity is a part of it. But I do think, like like Jancis alludes to, at least from my understanding of cult wines, there has to be some component of you know of it, not necessarily ageability but collectability to it. Too. I agree Th- with that. that. There is an idea that. that it's not like the trendy wine to be sipping right now. Those are a different. That's another thing that we can talk about. But but there has to be an element of like I. That these wines have a perception of of being an investment. Um, now, whether your goal with these wines is to drink them or not, that's a whole another question. But like, I I do think that's a a piece of the cult wine description that that can't really be transferred over to wines that don't have that that just aren't made in that with that in mind.
0: I think that's I think that's very true. I think that where it gets muddy. Is that first of all, now that we know that this has something to do with the American idea, right? Is interesting because I do think that there are wines that are considered natural, like Roanía, you know, like Cloveryard, that are super collectible, that that do increase in value, that could be quote unquote cult. But I, I will agree with you that I think it. it if you're going to say it's cult, it has to have this investment potential. I mean, if if we're also like taking Jancis's, um definition to account where she's talking about being bought by investors, right? So it's like, it's people who are saying like, you know, when am I going to be able to sell this at Sotheby's and what's, and what's the exit price going to be, which then I say, think is also like sort of the bummer of cult wines is like, these are wines that often are only consumed by the critics that rate them. And then everyone else doesn't consume them. They just hold them for resale and they continue to resale and resale and resale. And no one ever actually appreciates them because if you open them, you lose your investment, right? And if it's <laughs> a truly a cult wine, then you can never actually drink it. That's the saddest fucking thing in the world.
1: Catch me with my Piquette at Sotheby's in a couple of decades.
0: <laughs> be See the you best. there. That'd be the best. I know Seth's like laughing all the way to the bank like, suckers. Suckers.
1: <laughs> you want some Picat from 2015?
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh it's it's also not just I think that that no one ever drinks it. It's that also then if anyone ever drinks it, it's the same people. You know, it's the same extremely wealthy people who can afford to either buy those wines and, and are not buying them for, for investment or buy them at an auction 25 years down the road because they have the money and they want to drink them. And it does does kind of create this whole world and and I, I think it's really interesting to think about it in wine where, you know, and we've talked about this in certain ways about Grand Cru Burgundy, about First Growth Bordeaux in certain cases, where like you have all these kind of things that are put out there to you know younger wine, you know drinkers, wine professionals as the sort of apex of wine, and yet almost no one can try them. You know, like you, you just you you cannot drink those wines unless you are very wealthy or very fortunate, and many of us are neither. And that I think is where the like the kind of the hype wines that Oset is talking about are are so kind of interesting because, you know. They're not cheap often. Sometimes they're relatively, you know, sometimes they're 25, 30 bucks. Um, they might be scarce, but you can you can be a part of that sort of sense of like, ah, I got to try this thing that everyone is talking about, but I didn't have to, you know, pay an arm and a leg for it. And that that is cool. It's cool that wine can have these kind of buzzy things that are not, that don't require decades of time to, um, you know, kind of mature in whatever way you're describing maturing um, and also are not completely inaccessible to people without trust funds.
1: It's a more egalitarian cult wine.
0: I agree.
2: Yeah. A cult wine for everyone, for the masses. Wait, a cult wine great. for everyone. I've actually had wine made by an actual cult, which is a different story entirely.
0: Mm. But, yeah. Uh, that's so I, really, that's, that's yeah, that's a lot.
2: It's, <laughs> they're really cult. good, actually. Who they're really it? good. What kind of cult? I would have to look it up again. Uh, Esther Mobley, friend of the show, and... uh Wine writer for uh, the San Francisco Chronicle it wrote a piece a number of years ago about Renaissance Vineyard, which was run by uh, I want to call them like I want to say well, I I don't remember what the name of the of the cult was. They were very into uh, like uh, antiquity and particularly the Romans. Um, so there was a lot of um, they had a uh, like the this the property has like a lot of like. You know, uh, statues and columns, um, but also had a lot Do of like uh, sexual and like stuff like that.
1: The Ivy League, what?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's The Ivy League.
3: <laughs>
1: I don't know. Could you be referring to? <laughs> uh,
2: it's out
0: but in anyway, the middle of uh, the
2: Sierra foothills, so
0: I don't think so. But uh, who knows? It could be like a secret, like one of those clubs from Yale or something. You know? Yeah, it could Skullin be. Definitely could be one of those too. Uh, <laughs> we have Club societies, of society,
2: but uh, they made a bunch of wine, and some of it was actually really, really good. I still have some bottles. Adam, if you ever actually come visit or Oset, or both of you, welcome to have some.
0: Um, oh, okay. That'd that's be the cool. closest to, to cult wine that I own. I around. love that. Well, so, okay. So we're going to let you go and have this conversation. We want to set it up real quick so we can try the wine yeah. when you get back. So, yeah, you can, uh, you can hear me talk
2: about uh, cult wines with uh, a person who makes... Uh, cult wines, including one we're about to try on the other side of this interview. Uh, Elizabeth Boursier, who's the winemaker at uh, Bionic wines in, uh, well, technically in Oregon, but basically in Washington because she's in Walla Walla. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, give that a listen and then come back and try some of her wine. Cool. For the Vine Podcast, I'm Zach Jabal, and joining me today is Elizabeth Boursier. She's the resident vigneron at Bionic Wines in, well, kind of technically Washington State, technically Oregon. Uh, it's a little, a little hazy there on the border. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for your time.
3: Hey, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here.
2: Yeah, I, I'm very excited about this conversation. We're going to talk about some things that I find fascinating, uh, in the world of wine. But maybe first, uh, before we dive into some of those specific questions, you can start by just telling the listeners a little bit about your, yourself and your background. How did you, uh, come to, to Bionic Wines and, and wine in general?
3: Sure. Yeah. So I am, um, you know, I grew up, uh, the family of wine drinkers and we actually even have a bloodline to a family winery in in the Bordeaux region of France. And oh, so. Cool. Yeah, my family kind of always enjoyed wine and introducing it to me from a young age just to kind of learn about it at the dinner table. And um, I was always asking questions. And, you know, my father pretty much told me that you could study wine and that really sparked my interest. So uh, I heard that the Walla Walla Community College was going to be starting a program and I uh, moved out to Walla Walla uh, when I was 18 years old, right after I graduated high school, to start the first uh, year of the Walla Walla Community College um, Enology and Viticulture program. And then after that, I transferred to Cal Poly to get my bachelor's, bachelor's degree in uh, viticulture. Okay. And um, from there, did a little traveling, some harvest abroad and in California, and um, ended up back Back here in the Pacific Northwest, and then I just Christoph and I had met before, and uh, I heard that he was hiring, and I interviewed for the job, and that was uh, back in two thousand and eight. So I started there as the enologist, and have just worked my way up over the years, and yeah, that's how I ended up here.
2: And and for people who aren't familiar with Bionic Wines, can you give a little background on the winery and on, and on Christoph, uh, who that is?
3: Definitely, yeah, and so Christoph and he's originally from Champagne, France in the town of shirley sur um, he comes from a, a long uh, family lineage of, you know, champagne growers and his family owns a champagne house and um, Christophe always wanted to learn more and explore more and instead of kind of just uh, you know, continuing work with the family at that time, he wanted to go and work abroad and work some harvest. So he ended up coming to the United States back in 1993 to work a, a internship at a winery in Walla Walla. And he ended up doing some more traveling and returned back to uh, Washington State. His original goal was to, you know, plant, maybe some Pinot Noir or work at a winery in the Willamette Valley. But um, Mm. he saw one day driving through um, Milton tree water outside of Walla Walla where we are situated, uh, drove through kind of just by chance the area and saw the stones and uh, literally like jumped out of the car and said, (laughs) this is it. And And his friend who was driving him at the time was like, what do you mean, this is it? And he's like, no, this is like where I'm gonna, this is where I'm gonna plant vines. And uh, his friend was like, you're crazy because nobody plants vines in this. It was pure stones. It really reminded Christophe of, you know, like the galettes you see in Chateauneuf. And um, he's like, no, this is where I'm gonna do. And so in um, March, 1997, Christophe planted, you know, the first, Modern day vines um, in that area, and has since established um, almost seventy acres in the the stones of Milton freewater
2: and so by the time you come on board in 2008, um, you know, already the some of his wines have have garnered a lot of of critical acclaim and attention. And I'm wondering, you know, I think that for some for some of our listeners who are in definitely in the wine industry um and and even for those who are not there are people who might think about even just getting involved with as as highly regarded a an operation as that as both maybe very exciting obviously it's it's I'm sure was 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 and is thrilling to work on wines that are so highly regarded but also maybe a little bit scary like there is uh there's not a lot of um I mean, maybe for you individually, uh, starting out there, there's a little bit of, um, anonymity, but the wines are going to be, you know, heavily prized, collected, scrutinized, reviewed, et cetera. When you, when you first started out working for, for Bionic, was that something that you kind of thought about or were you just kind of like, Hey, I need a job.
3: <laughs> well, um, you know, still, even when I joined in 2008, I mean, it was relatively early in the Washington, you know, Walla Walla scene. Um, you know, Definitely places were established, but um, I had heard about Kristoff and his wines. I had actually come out to tour the vineyards when I was in school and tried some of the wines. And I had also worked in some higher-end restaurants through my college years in Seattle and had the opportunity to try some Cayuse wines from customers who brought them in. Mm -hmm. And I think more than like scared, I was so intrigued. So it wasn't so scary to me. It was very exciting because I had never tasted wines like that in anywhere, really, in Washington, but even the United States. And yeah. um, I mean, they were so ter- terroir-driven. It was something so new to me um, that I was like, "What is this? And <laughs> how is it so amazing?" Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't really believe it. it. Like, made me wines that really make you think. And so, getting involved with it was like pretty. For me and that was what I've always wanted to do is work with wines like that that are authentic and so it felt really right to me
2: yeah I'm curious too I maybe for people who are not super familiar with with the wines can you talk a little bit about kind of um what you guys make in terms of maybe varieties and styles and 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 just some things some basics about the wines because again you know part of what I mentioned in this conversation is you know these are these are you know what what some would call cult wines They're they're mm-hmm. certainly um highly regarded and prized and not produced in huge quantities so so some of our listeners may just may have even perhaps heard of the some of the labels or the wines but may not have ever tried them so if you can can talk a little bit about kind of what you guys make and obviously that that list has grown over the years
3: <laughs> Okay, so our our main focus is Syrah. Uh, we also do Grenache, and Tempranillo, and some Bordeaux varietals, so some Cab Franc, Merlot, Cabernet. Uh, but definitely our our focus is Syrah and vineyard at Syrah from all of our estate vineyards that are all in the stones of uh, the Milton Three Water. Uh, underneath Bionic Wines, we have different uh, brands. So we've got the Cayuse brand. Um, we've got the No Girls brand, and then we also have the Horsepower brand, which is a tight spaced vines that are all worked with our draft horses. And we also have a four category vineyard. It's just a little bit outside Milton Freewater, um, and it's a just one vineyard uh, planted up uh, where the North Fork of the Walla Walla River um, converges with the South Fork. And so it's actually a vineyard that's planted uh, on a pretty steep slope. And uh, we also have Christophe Champagnes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different brands, a lot of different wines, <laughs> kind of a lot of small labels uh, within Bionic wines. But uh, yeah, a lot of opportunities to work with some different varietals. And really, I'd say the you know definitely the core foundation of what Cayuse is all about is the stones and the terroir. You know this—the yeah. place where we are—is really the foundation of what we do, and it's really what makes the wine so unique.
2: Very cool. And I don't want to get too deep into winemaking, just because like I could spend forever there, and I'm sure you could too. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. but for listeners, it might not be. But but in terms of what you guys do uh, in in the vineyard, I'm sorry, not in the vineyard, in the winery. Obviously, you know there are a lot of different approaches to winemaking. Um, you know whether with Syrah, some of those other varieties, et etc. But But like broadly speaking, could you talk about sort of what you guys do in the in the winery and in the ways in which maybe the practices, things you do or do not do that you feel like help kind of bring that terroir to life or help you capture it in a finished wine?
3: For Sure. Yeah. So that's, I mean, definitely a really important part of the whole uh, bionic wines concept is uh, we've been biodynamic since uh, almost the very beginning of the vines being planted. So Christoph did decide to um, start, you know, converting to biodynamics right after his first couple of vineyards were planted. And uh, we practice biodynamics in the vineyards as well as the wine uh, creation. We think that's definitely something very important to the finished product and to what we do. And the philosophy, and yeah, inside the wine studio where we create the wines, we, you know, we don't do any, and we are all, you know, I'd say natural, but we, we don't add any uh, commercial yeast or commercial bacteria for our malolactic, so it's all natural fermentation, uh, really just kind of low-impact winemaking, uh, just really letting the wines. And the varietals show through and uh, speak for themselves. And we really just, you know, the goal is to let that terroir show through because it's such a unique growing area and the wines are definitely so unique. They don't need, they don't need much.
2: And as far as, you know, again, for for folks who maybe have had a chance to try your wines or or would like to look for them in the future, or who have maybe have the opportunity to try other wines from um, within Milton Freewater because, um, Obviously, there have been <laughs> other plantings uh, yes. since Christoph kind of mm-hmm. um, provided a proof of concept for the whole notion that you could uh, plant vines and make wine from there. Yeah. Um, what are, What are you know in your eyes? I have my own thoughts on this, but a lot of our listeners may not be super familiar with um with the Ross Rocks District and may not have mm-hmm. tried very many of the wines. What are mm-hmm. some of the hallmarks of wines? Um, Syrah, maybe specifically, but but I think something in my experience, you know, there are characteristics that really show through um, across a wide range of different varieties.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's this stone in the, you know, we like to refer to them as the stones and the uh, as the word Caillou that, mm-hmm. you know, original vineyard that Kristoff planted, uh I mean, it translates literally to you know, the stone. That's what it is. So we talk about the stones and uh, there's a savoriness uh a saltiness, just complete kind of minerality driven wines and, they can be smoky and meaty, you know, not smoky in a smoke taint way. but I'm talking about like smoke, you know, like charcoal or you know, cold fireplace and the characteristics that we talk about the wines, like they're they're really mineral driven wines. And I know that term gets thrown around a lot from people, but it's hard to explain these wines in any other way. It's really uh, they're so unique when you try wines from this area it's unlike anything else in the world because literally the soil is unlike anything else in the world i mean there's really nowhere else in the world other than seabeds where you have this kind of basalt stones yeah so and it's so unique to have that and it's and then you see that in the way
2: yeah. And I think it's something to note too. You can maybe can maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding too is that one of the things that's different is as opposed to the galettes of Chateauf de Pop or some other regions in the south uh, in the southern Rhone or maybe a few other places in the world, here you have stones that like it's like hundreds of feet deep, right? It's not like a surface layer. There's like incredible depth of these of these sort of um yeah, these of these stones.
3: Yes, you have that exactly right. And down, so I'm talking like 400 feet or more of pure basalt stone, which is very different than, yeah, Sheptoneth, which you've got, you know, uh, from, I've never been there, but a couple layers, uh, a couple feet of the stone of the Galette. So yeah, it's pure, you know, those vines go deep down, continuing looking for resources and from, you know, nutrients and for water and uh, they go so deep
2: i have been to chesniff the but i can tell you you can you can pick up a couple of of stones and find dirt like it's not that hard yeah. um definitely not possible in in uh, milton free water yeah uh, okay i want to i want to come back to something you were talking about a little bit before and, and ask you to expand on it a little bit so as you mentioned uh in the course of your time with uh bionic wines you have You guys have added a few different vineyards and and a few different labels, um, either to sort of highlight some of these, uh, these individual vineyards or just offer an opportunity to kind of do some slightly different things. And, and again, when you're dealing with, you know, such reputation, and again, I don't, I'm not here to necessarily, um, (laughs) you know, we're not going to do PR work, but anyone who's curious can search and see, you know, there's any number of hundred point wines. There's a lot of very high regard. The the wines are not inexpensive. So it's definitely, you know, fair to say that anything that you guys put out what under whatever label is going to be thought, you know, there's just a lot of attention paid to it. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, as a, as a vigneron and and as a, just sort of as a team more broadly think about, okay, how do we, how do we say, okay, we're, we're, I mean, I don't know, we're comfortable putting our name on this or we think this is, um, you know, this is not, um, you know, we, we, we think this is going to be as well received by our, um, you know, uh, wine, you know, our, our uh, subscription list p- members at, by our by critics, etc, as everything else we've done, like, is there is there some added weight to that compared to not that you necessarily can speak from personal experience, but I'm sure you know, lots of other winemakers and stuff. You know, I imagine for some wineries, it's like, hey, we have a new project, we just mm-hmm. we're just going to put it out there, right? We don't really <laughs> think about what it's going to mean for our reputation in the way that you guys might have to.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting, because, you know, when I started at Cayuse, it was amazing how detail-oriented Christoph was with everything he did. There's so much thought that goes into every aspect of the wine and, and really, you know, that foundation of you know, the vineyards. That's, that's where the work ha- happens and that's the reason, you know, the, you know, we do a lot in the wine studio as well, but it's not, once the product comes in, it's easy for us to, yeah. you know, not do much to it to let it show through. So it's like um yeah, it's a lot of pressure because, you know, every every decision we make, it's has to be very thought out and what is the goal? What are you know, how are we gonna do this? You know, what there's no just like you know, money is definitely not the the driver here. Mm-hmm. and you know everything we do has to be justified and yeah there's a reason Christoph has gotten to the point he's gotten um you know and it's you know like 25 years of very hard work but you know I do see a lot of um you know, wineries now kind of a lot of people do kind of early release of the wine or put it out there you know new vintage and mm-hmm. it's kind of just i wonder sometimes too what is the you know, are are you just making money, or are you really feel great about that product? You know, and that's, I think it's important for uh, the industry to look at that right now, because you know we need to, you know, you got to remember that quality is like, we could make more wine, you know, we like at Cayuse, we could we could make a lot more and sell a lot more, but we don't, you know, it's about balance and making sure that the product is literally like the highest quality that it can be every time we put something out. And if it's not, we don't release it.
2: So I'm curious actually kind of in this vein, because um, one of the last things I wanted to ask about when you talk about, you know, wineries like yours where there are very highly regarded wines that are not made in huge quantities, as you mentioned, you know, Mm -hmm. there hasn't, there's been a very, I think a a conscious attempt to, to, um, to keep the quality extremely high That inevitably kind of creates circumstances where demand possibly does outstrip supply, um, both sort of primarily in terms of, you know, presumably there are any number of individual uh, consumers and collectors, wine shops, restaurants, et cetera, who might want to buy your wines and just there isn't enough to fill all that potential demand. And of course it creates a secondary market. You know, again, this is something that not a lot of wineries have to really think about that, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of wineries, you know, there's, if someone buys a bottle and then resells it, it's not really going to, you know, if they even do that, it's not going to meaningfully appreciate in value, but, Mm -hmm. but Cayuse wines along with um, any number of other wines in the world, a a small number, but they exist. Do have that, you know, people buy them to collect them. They buy them as investments. Like, do Mm -hmm. you, I know that having talked to and heard from, some producers at other places that that have wines that fall into that same general category they're kind of of two minds of it obviously it's flattering in some sense that people are willing to spend hundreds or thousands potentially in some of these cases of of dollars on a bottle of wine but of course you know in the secondary market that that money does not come back to the winery at all and it does create weird potentially weird incentives for people to get their hands on the wine without ever intending to drink it which i would imagine again i'm not a winemaker so i don't know (laughs) but if i were a winemaker it would kind of bum me out that people were buying my wines for reasons other than just to drink them so i don't know how do you feel about that i know it's kind of a broad question but
3: yeah i mean definitely like for Christoph and i that bums us out because you know that's not what wine is all about like you know if you want to buy cayuse wine like the intent to buy cayuse wine or is to drink Caillou's wine like it's a special you get to that point too or you can buy it it's like that that does that's a bummer that people would want to do that and and that makes us really sad I mean when Kristoff and I buy wine I don't that's not what we that's I don't go and sell my bottles you know like buy wine to drink our wine and but yeah with that said I mean there's a lot, you know there's not a lot of time in the day to like go around and police every single person on the list and trying to find out who did what and people are going to buy the line and there's going to be people doing that out there you know and it's not it's not what we like and it does make us you know pretty like disappointing but at the end of the day and there's a lot of and you know a lot of people on the list and we, we just you know it would make us go crazy if we were constantly trying to track that all down and find it if it's on something obvious you know and we see it or we hear about it and someone you know has a wine shop and you know suddenly it's showing up there you know like there's some things that are very obvious and we're able to okay you know sorry but you won't be receiving the wine anymore and and we've done that definitely but yeah you know with that said it's um, more expensive that wines get and and the more people want them, and the more people hear about them, definitely, like that's gonna. More people are gonna want to try to get their hands on it and make money, and it's kind of the way you know you're seeing a lot of more expensive wines happening all over. So yeah, yeah, and it's too bad. And I, you know, definitely Christoph and I would love for people to just buy our wines, to just enjoy our wines. That's that's the goal. <laughs> yeah.
2: Excellent. Well, that is good to hear. Um, I will say that <laughs> I, I think that is an ethos from my experience that is generally shared, but not uh, universally shared yeah. by every uh, producer that I've talked to, uh, mm-hmm. mostly off the record, um, for, for, frankly. I mean, again, I think there's a lot of people who are – I would say it's not so much that they are making wine for, for reasons other than people to enjoy them, mm-hmm. but it's that the their their ability – you know they, they let's say they they are maybe more um okay with the secondary market going crazy cuz it mm-hmm. has allowed them to Bump up the primary cost a lot higher um, than maybe it would have, mm-hmm. and again, you know, obviously, you know, making wine is is not an easy proposition. It's difficult. It's fickle. It's, it's time consuming, labor, you know, intensive, et cetera, et cetera. Especially the way you guys make wine. Mm-hmm. So, so no one is is begr- and and of course, in any situation or in almost all situations, there is a limited supply, and so, um, to some extent, when demand grows and grows and grows, the 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 cost of you know it's capitalism. The cost can mm-hmm. go up too. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate yeah. it. Fascinating to learn more uh, about you and about uh, your wines and and this whole world of, you know, very kind of highly coveted and and beloved wines. So again, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
3: Definitely. Thanks so much. It was great speaking with you.
0: So Zach, so we're about to try occult wine. So this yeah, is Cayuse vineyards, but Caius, this is still Bionic yeah. wines. Yeah, so Bionic wines is kind of like the
2: overarching company. They have a few different labels now. Uh, Cayuse, which refers to some of the original vineyards that was plant that uh, uh, the founder Christoph Baron planted, and then uh, some of their more uh, recent plantings are under like the Horsepower label, uh, the Horsepower. No Girls label. Uh, Etc. So, uh, but Caius refers to kind of their uh, generally wines from their sort of core initial plantings, including this En uh 2017 Syrah, which we're about to have. Have either of you, as you know it, had Syrah from uh, the Rocks District of Walla Walla before? No, no way. I don't okay. really
1: drink much Syrah.
2: Oh my god, Hossette. Okay, well, th- th- we'll pick that up another time.
1: Uh, I do love okay.
2: Syrah. This will but... probably surprise you because it does not. Well, we'll just you just taste it. Tell me what you think. I guess.
0: Okay, cool. So let's let's swear a little in glass, glass. Is
1: that like your ASMR aspect <laughs> here, because Lord,
0: gotta
2: get gotta get that authentic sound. Effect. It Does not
0: taste like Syrah.
2: It
1: it does not. for my limited exposure as a leisure time Ciro so drinker, <laughs>
0: there's a lot of menthol going on.
1: Yeah, it is menthol, isn't it? Hmm.
0: Yeah, there's
2: definitely a an herbaceous note to it for sure. Um, but I think of it, yeah, it's got a bitter herb. You could say there's a tiny, like a bit of kind of a fernet quality to it, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But it very much belies kind of the classic expectation for like a West Coast cult wine and that it's not like it's not big and ripe and fruity and like heavily oaked and anything. It's like very wild and sort of gamey, meaty, along with all very that gamey.
0: Of... It's extremely gamey. Yeah. That's what I was to say. Like very raw meat, and that's like a weird signature of this of this AVA.
2: Um, you know, not just the Cayuse wines, but basically everything I've had from there, especially that's made from Cabernet. I'm sorry, from a Syrah or Grenache down there. It has this character to it. It's just it's just wild. It's it's also a the mo- like one of the most bizarre uh, sort of. Wine regions I've ever seen, um, because like it has a sort of superficial similarity to a lot of the southern Rhone, like Châteauneuf du Pop, because it has these very, uh, like sort of tumbled, uh, river rocks as the sort of, uh, vineyard, sort of base. Um, but when you go to Châteauneuf du Pop and you walk through the vineyards, um, the stones are like a couple of feet deep. Here it's like 400 feet of this. And There's like nothing else. Um, it's fucking wild.
0: It's yeah, it's a, it's a cra- it's a crazy wine. I mean, I can.
1: I have a hard time putting it into a bucket. I yeah, like don't. I, do I mean, it, it certainly defies buckets.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think it's like it's one of these wines. Honestly, Zach, exactly. I can see how it would become cult mm-hmm. because it is very. It's hard to to grasp. Yeah. And I think you know. I think that's what a lot of people like about cult wines is that they're they're challenging, right? Like, there's as you said, they're not for everybody, and so I think that that sort of that style of wine can kind of kind of supersedes others, but it's like, you know, this this wine is of this very specific place, and it tastes very different than other things you've had before, and and so therefore it becomes this wine that everybody sort of goes apeshit for. Um, it's really an interesting wine.
2: Yeah, I think one other piece of this, and it, it kind of very much connects to what you just said, Adam, is that yeah, some people who are interested in buying expensive wine who are not necessarily like wine connoisseurs per se but are people who like to spend money on expensive things are drawn to wines that have very distinctive characteristics and are very kind of easy to recognize in their own way and i think that's where these wines like certainly my experience selling them in restaurants has been that like some people are turned off by the style they don't like it but Mm -hmm. some people just want something that's going to be like you know, so has so much kind of it's both intense and complex, and offers all of that. But it, in this case, obviously, in a very different way than your kind of classic, you know, Napa Valley cult Cabernet, um, which gives you a very different kind of intensity and complexity from you know just different source material, different winemaking approach, etc. And so this, you know, this has kind of come along at the same time that similarly styled wines from France, like from the Northern Rhone, have also become very, very popular, and um, and in some cases kind of like eye-poppingly expensive and it makes sense because in a way they are very different both from the kind of classic expensive Pinot Noir or you know Burgundy's and also yeah uh you know Bordeaux or Cabernet based wines
0: interesting it's been a really fascinating conversation um and I want to thank you Zach for sharing this wine with us uh thank Elizabeth so- I just I just gave you her you guys' address it was very nice well, thank you something. Elizabeth very very cool uh very cool wine and uh yeah, really fascinating conversation. I'd love to hear what, what listeners think. What you think makes a wine cult, or what you think the definition of cult wine is. So, if you want to hit us up, podcasts dot com. We always love to hear those opinions, or you know, slide into people's DMs. It's fine.
1: If you've ever squirreled away bottles of Joe Swick, this is your time
2: to speak
0: up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and <laughs> with we'll that, see you at Sotheby's in twenty years. Yeah, that oh, so we'll see you for the Piquette uh, for the Piquette sale? Like yeah, 20 years. I mean, maybe it's probably all going to be flat. I mean,
1: it's. I'm probably going to be like on the coast of Italy at that point with my earnings. So (laughs) whatever, guys. So whatever, guys. Whatever.
0: Anyways, with that, have a great weekend, both of you. And Zach, I'll see you on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Stations Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again.